0: This week, Susie had, had one of her doctor's appointments. And as we're leaving, now the kids are at home and they're not at school, right? And um, so as we're leaving, we give this list of instructions. Now, why as parents would we give lists of instructions for when we leave? Because we know if we don't, probably the 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 list goes out the door because there is no list. And so who knows what people are going to do. But we want people to do or our kids to do what they're supposed to be doing while we're gone. It's not so much that we don't trust them but you want to give direction and you want to give an idea of what to do so that way they don't just veg on the couch for for three or four hours when they get back they had schoolwork that had to be done and certain household responsibilities part of the family that had to be done and they did them all it was great they followed the list but we we come to today's text and i I want to use that sort of because that's how i understand what paul is doing in this section of first thessalonians five He has just talked about the fact that Jesus is coming back, right? Amen. He's coming back. We should look forward to that. And they're excited about it. But now he's dealing with what do we do before he comes back? While he's gone, what do we do? Because you could see if, if we thought Jesus was coming back this week, then, hey, we do nothing. And we can binge watch Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, The Avengers, and Little House on the Prairie yeah, that's sort of where my house goes, um, all those things. We can binge watch those and don't have to do any responsibilities because, hey, Jesus is coming soon. But Paul here wants the church to understand, no, there's things that we should be doing. We should be working while we're waiting, which is the title of this week and next week. We should be actively pursuing our walk with God. We should be doing the things that we're supposed to be doing. See, Paul is also gone, right? He was ripped away after a, a few weeks of ministering to them. And, and he's down at Corinth, probably hearing the reports. And so he's trying to tell them not only what to do with, when Jesus is away, but what to do while he's away because he wants to come back. And so we end up in this section. And, and those of you that have pulled up your sermon notes, don't panic yet. I know it looks like nine points. It's really two with a bunch of subpoints. points. So, so go with me on this. Um, Because what Paul is doing here is he gives a checklist. Do this, do this. Watch out for this, do this. And and as we study it, we would call these staccato instructions. And if you've you've done anything with music, staccato means just quick, one right after another. And Paul is reminding them, remember this, remember this, remember this. Don't forget this. And it's like a checklist as we went out the door to our kids. And, And so Paul is giving us just a wonderful idea. How should we stay busy? What should we stay busy doing while we're waiting for Christ's return? How do we wait well? And so we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 15 today. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 15. Encourage you even at home, open your Bibles, open your app. Make sure you're following along. But we want to look at some of these instructions regarding community and how to treat each other and how to act in, in community. If you remember, the grand theme of First and Second Thessalonians is essentials of a life pleasing to God. And that has come up several times, even in the few short chapters we've talked about. And this checklist sort of gives us a checklist. Okay, what are some of the marks of a life pleasing to God? What are some of those essentials? And today we're going to break it up into two categories regarding church authority and regarding the, the church family. What are some of the principles we have there? So let's read 12 through 15 and then we'll break it apart and see what challenges God wants to give us out of his word. Starting at verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Amen. That's a list of nine instructions that we're going to go through today. And like I said, we're going to break it up into two parts. The first is regarding church authority, we're to respect. So how do we respect church authority? Well, and I just have to address sort of for me, the elephant in the room, right from the start, I recognize that that I am a church leader talking about church leadership and this can sound self-serving. And so really we're going to find this is talking about church leadership in general, not just the pastor, but especially the pastors and elders, those who are over you spiritually. But, but the other reason I'm okay going over this passage, well, several reasons. One is it's the next passage in, in the book and we don't skip passages. Um, or there's one that we'll go back to once the kids have their own time. Um, But the other is, Village, for me, this section is a commendation to you, not a challenge to you. Because I have been amazed and blessed over almost 25 years in ministry here to see how you support and encourage and follow well church leadership. It is astounding and it is rare. And I commend you for that and thank you for that. So as we talk about this, I'm excited to talk about it because I'm like, village is an example of these things. And so let's see what, what God's word has to say. How do we regard church leadership well? How do we respect church leadership? And he starts in verse 12 there. We ask you brothers, and, and actually it's interesting. He's about to talk about respect. And we ask you, he uses a very respectful request. And so he's almost showing them what respect looks like as he asks this of them. He's also showing them how to lead a servant leader. We ask you brothers or brothers and sisters to respect those who labor among you. And the first part, the first checklist item here is, is to understand and respect the nature and weight of spiritual leadership. Yes, I could have just said respect spiritual leadership, but the wording here is actually a lot deeper than that. So understand and respect the nature and weight of church leadership. And and by this, especially when we look at the word respect, that's a unique word there that says not only to respect, but to appreciate, so appreciate what someone is doing, but to know, And, and to know wouldn't translate into English well, but the idea of understanding, I think, is a good explanation of that. Understand those who labor among you understand what they do, appreciate what they do. And he gives three functions in verse 12 of what they do just to help them understand, right? Now, now keep in mind, this has got to be a challenge for this church. Paul's there three to six weeks, gets ripped away, just started the church, maybe put some leaders in, into place, but probably not many, and all of them are baby Christians, and so you have leadership that is taking on the, the role of leadership with no, virtually no training, no experience. And, and suddenly you're like, well, Joe was my friend and now he's an elder over me. What's going on? And, and, and so this had to be a challenge for the church, which I believe is why Paul's addressing it. He probably got word from Timothy saying, yeah, there's some, some challenges with leadership here. And so he begins to describe what leadership involves in a church. And encouraging people to respect those leaders over them. Three functions. The first one is those who labor among you. And that word for labor is very specific and very intentional. It means to work hard among you. Laborious toil. And I hesitate to use that word because it's, Paul's not saying that leading in a church and, and shepherding is a drudgery or a pain in the neck. That's not what he's saying He's saying it's hard work that should take most of your thoughts and time. Um, and and, and he, he doesn't back off on that. It's, it's, you, you don't lead a church, you don't watch over people spiritually for an hour a week, and you're done. You can't do it nine to five in a week either. It's something that if we if we lead well, people are in our hearts. They're family, your church family. And, and leading well means to, to be a leader like that, 24 hours a day, seven days a week to care. I think of, of being a dad. And there's so many comparisons between being a father and being a leader in a church as a father. I need to work hard at being a father that needs to consume me. I don't have certain days or certain hours of the day where I'm like, I'm not a dad. You're on your own kids, by the way, you know, have, have a good lunch. I hope you find something. No, I'm their father. And I'm responsible for them. And there's a weight to that. And Paul is saying, respect those who labor, who work hard. Guys, hard work is a beautiful thing. I think our culture's scared of it sometimes today. Hard work is a beautiful thing and never to be shamed. You know, what Paul is getting at here, and, and I say this hoping that you understand where I'm coming from, ministry challenges your time. Ministry challenges your wisdom. Ministry takes emotional strength. It takes intellectual strength. And all of those things can drain you. But that's okay. Because when you love someone, that's what you do. And so Paul is saying, respect, understand where church authority is at because of the weight. Understand the weight of their job. You know, there's, there's... two extremes of how we can deal with this, right? And and yes, pastors, I've seen pastors and leaders become workaholics and overdo this and, and I've seen some that, that struggle to to manage their time and you know sometimes there's the comment and I know it's always funny, but oh you you only work one day a week. And I know people at village don't believe that, but I've talked to people at other churches that are like, yeah, I think my pastor only works one day a week. Now I know that's not true. I, I, I know that they they just don't understand the scope of the ministry. When you're family, you're family. And it doesn't stop. He goes on to say, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. And that is a challenge right there. Who are over you in the Lord. Who care for you in the Lord. Who lead, protect, and care for. Those in leadership over you spiritually, they will stand before God And answer to God for your souls. That is weighty. I mean, that means something. And he says, over you in the Lord. He's talking spiritual authority here. That's how we know that. And we'll look at a verse here in a minute that talks a little bit more about that. But respect church leadership because they're they're caring for your souls. They're over you. Third one, he mentions is they admonish you. So they labor among you. They're over you in the Lord. They admonish you. And, and the word there again is a correction. You know, something we all love, right? We just can't wait for someone to come and correct us. Someone to challenge our way of thinking. Someone to say, hey, let's go back to the Bible and make sure we're being biblical on this. And, and this correction can be administered either by word or by deed and, and it is in a way that's not lording it over or challenging. Um, as, as far as yes, I'm going to hit someone hard. I'm going to to really give them all I have. No, if, if quite frankly, if we if we like to admonish and challenge people, we probably shouldn't be admonishing and challenging people because our heart's not in the right place. One author said, "This this word of admonition is designed to correct while not provoking or embittering." Again, dads, that's how we should be with our family. In fact, we have verses that say, do not provoke your children to wrath, do not embitter your children. Leadership is able to admonish without embittering and provoking to wrath. Doesn't mean people like to be admonished. But this is one of those thankless jobs that's never easy. It's like on the elder board, do we say, okay, who's going to, to go talk to so-and-so about this? And not not that it happens a lot, but you just don't get a lot of hands raised. Like, yeah, let's do that. Um, This is not an easy job, and we need to understand what church leadership is going for. You know, part of this and, and part of what I so appreciate about Village, part of respecting in this way, respect those who labor among you, is following well. And you have proven over and over and over again that you follow well willing to share opinions, and it's not a blind following, but you respect and follow well, and I praise you for that because it makes it a joy to be here. Makes it a joy. As I think about this one, too, of respecting church authority, understanding um, what role they have in my life, I think of the question, what role does spiritual authority have in your life? You know, there's two different ways of thinking of it. We can think of spiritual authority as a chaplain, or a leader in our lives. A chaplain sort of comes along when there's trouble, cheers us up a little bit, and visits in the hospital. A chaplain sort of just is a a sideline to help us when we need it. But a spiritual leader is to be challenging our growth spiritually, moving us forward spiritually, and someone we follow. So point number one that Paul makes regarding church leadership Understand and respect the nature and weight of spiritual leadership. In your notes, I've done something a little different. And and so you see a, a place that you can rank yourself and, and understand yourself. And, and we're not comparing to each other. But I think some self-evaluation with a checklist like this is healthy. And just like my kids, when I give them a checklist, I love it when I come home and see them checked off if they've actually done it and see it checked off, like, okay, they, they followed the list. Uh, but from a, on a scale of one to five, how are you doing on that one? How are you doing with respect and following? And throughout the, the morning, every point has one of these, and they serve as a chance for the Holy Spirit to start to direct our hearts. The next thing that, that Paul instructs through the Holy Spirit um, the church to do for their church leadership is there to esteem and love your church leaders exceedingly highly. Now, before you start saying that's a weird way of wording it, that's how the text basically words it. So I'm just copying that to get the point of the text. Esteem and love your church leaders exceedingly highly. Because it's it's a word, the word used for esteem, or or actually for very here, is a compound word that that literally means exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond. And Paul here is using a a combination of of words together into one word to to intensify what he's saying. And so he's challenging the church to, to go above and beyond how they think of their leadership how they esteem them, how they love them or agape them in this case. And still, the whole love side of things is so important in a church setting because this isn't a, a, a business. This isn't a CEO and employees. That is not the model for a church. That is not a biblical model. This is brothers and sisters in Christ where some happen to be in leadership and everybody is exercising their gifts. And so there's a mutuality here. There's a relationship here. And I love that Paul doesn't just say, esteem them highly. You know, you must bow, you must respect. But he, he says, it's a relationship in love. You know, when I, when I think of how I want my, my kids to treat me, I want them to follow my leadership. But I also want a loving relationship there. I, I don't want a cold, sterile relationship where it's just an obedience that, ah, oh, dad said to do this, I have to do this, and it's not out of love. And that's what Paul is getting here. And, and esteeming and, and loving church leaders, following and obeying, this is hard because we live in a culture that, that validates and esteems independence over leadership. We we esteem that I should get to do what I want to do, and so it is. We're, we're we're fighting a trend whenever we follow any leadership. We're fighting this. You know, it's why some churches I talk to, some pastors often get text. Well, you're doing this all wrong, and I'm not going to be part of it unless you change. I have never gotten that at Pillage. Thank you. Um, I've been wrong on decisions. I haven't always been right but I've never gotten, I'm not going to be part of it unless you do it my way. And I so appreciate that because that is esteeming highly, that is loving, that is following well. And so that verse says, esteem them highly in love because of their work. He goes back to remember what they do. And so thank you for your support, for the lack of criticism, but still the thoughtful interaction. I'm fine with differing opinions. We need to be. We're different people. But I can't even imagine what it would be like to lead a critical people. And I praise God, I don't have to know that right now. You know, one of the things with leadership and just um, sort of some, some transparency, during this time... We as leaders are are spending so much time talking about what to do as a church, how to do this, how to keep unity in the church, how to come together well, those four principles I talked about. And I think all of us would say we have never been more aware of our inadequacies. We have never been more aware that we don't have all the answers. My PhD in in virology or whatever, oh wait, I don't have one, um... And we're trying to make these decisions that honor God and are best for the church. And it's humbling. It it is humbling, but in a good way to force us to rely on the Holy Spirit. And so thank you for supporting and following. Even if we have to change direction sometimes. Because we're trying to honor God the best that we can. And you make it a joy to do that. Thank you. The passage goes on to the third point that I put under leadership because I think he starts a new point in verse 14. And so respecting leadership, the, the third point is live at peace with each other. Live in peace with each other. Now, we, we might say, okay, what does that have to do with respecting leadership? Village, it has everything to do with respecting leadership. Because it's, it's the church family getting along. Division tears an elder's heart apart. It makes it hard to lead. And and this, live in peace with each other, is a wonderful guidance, both for the leader and for the follower, and for everyone together. The The context here probably includes all of that. And so we lead with gentleness and grace. We follow well with with support and submission. We treat each other well because we live in peace with each other. This is vital to a church functioning well. But when people are at peace with each other and getting along, it brings joy to a leader's heart like no other. I'm going to embarrass my kids here a little bit. I'll owe you a dollar. I didn't get this one cleared. Um, (laughs) The other day, Susie and I are at the table and we're watching, and and this sounds really simple, but we watch our kids run outside and play on the trampoline together and enjoy their time together. And it was amazing. We took out a camera and took pictures. Um, Not that they don't always get along, but that moment of seeing peace and seeing cooperation and seeing working together was such a joy. It's the same way in a church. When we we as leaders see people coming together and at peace with each other, oh, it warms the heart. It warms the heart like, like nothing else. And so live at peace with each other. Am I someone making peace in the church? Am I someone helping people relax, helping people be themselves and and follow God, or am I making situations more tense? Something to think about. I want to end the section on church leadership and and how to um, please God in our response to church leadership with Hebrews 13, and going to another passage that talks about some of these same things and many of the same things and um, a a passage that quite frankly scares me at times but is so instructive. Hebrews 13 verses 17 and 18. Obey your leaders and submit to them. And he's talking church leadership here as we'll see in a second. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That's the part that, that gives me fear and trembling. But in a good way for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Yeah. (laughs) And and sometimes we stop there, but I want to include 18 because this is what I'm asking of you today. 18, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. And I've got to ask you, please pray for us, especially in the next few weeks, especially with decisions that there are so many different inputs and so many different ways of looking at. Please pray for us. And it gives you some things to pray for, that we will have a clear conscience, that we will act honorably in all things. We don't have it all down, and we need your prayer. And this is where the body needs each other. That's the section on how to, to respect church leadership, what, what a godly response to church leadership is. And you can, again, do, use the scale one to five to say how you're doing on each of those because I think that allows the Holy Spirit to convict and change us. But then in verses 14 and 15, Paul goes to, okay, that's regarding church leadership. What about church family? What are we supposed to do with church family? And we're to build up church family. And he gives us six just quick things with church family of how to do this. And he starts with, and we urge you, brothers. And this is a stronger admonition than how to treat church, church leadership. But we urge you, brothers. And he goes into this list. And this is a new thought that, because whatever we see and now concerning this or now we urge you, that's a new thought, so it's a new section. But how do we deal with, with each other in a way pleasing to God? especially while we're waiting for his return and he could come back at any time. How do we want him to find us? And he gives six different things. The first one, warn the idol. It's point number four in your notes. Warn the idol. And the word for warn there is actually a really strong word. Admonish, call someone out in love. Warn about the disastrous consequences of their actions. That's a definition that I found in one of the the commentaries that I just love. Warn them about the disastrous consequences of their action. Because that gives the seriousness of the warning, right? If I'm warning someone that, oh, you know, maybe you're having, you know, a little bit too much sugar in your your drink or whatever, that that can be a casual warning. But if I'm warning someone not to fall off a cliff, I'm yelling and screaming and and grabbing their attention, right? Different levels of urgency. This one's the second one. Admonish the idol. Now, there's, there's a lot of interesting things about that word idol. And um, there's, there's like we have in English words, there can be several definitions. And in this case, we're not quite sure which definition he's using because both apply. But it literally meant to those that get out of line. You might, well, what does that have to do with idol? And it was used of um, when a military formation was in rank, Someone that just chose not to be in rank, chose not to do what they were supposed to do. And so they're out of line, they're undisciplined, they're careless. So it could be a soldier, it could be a student that fails to do his work, fails to do something that you're supposed to do. So it's a, a person who sets themselves outside the necessary and given order. And so, you, so some translations translate this unruly or um, rebelliously, and it can mean unruly and rebellious. It can also mean being lazy and not doing your responsibilities. So this word has all of these things wrapped up. Which is it? I think it's probably a combination of all of them, because usually we would look at context for which it is, but Paul deals with both of those issues in First and Second Thessalonians. So the context would be both, and maybe Paul left it that way on purpose to say, don't be unruly. Don't get out of line. Again, honor your your authorities, your leaders well. But also, there was was clearly an issue where people were being lazy and people weren't doing their work because, oh, Jesus is coming back soon. And so he says, admonish the idol and take it seriously. These are the people that are too busy doing things they shouldn't be doing to be doing the things they should be. And that actually gets both parts of the definition in people that are too busy doing the things they shouldn't be doing to do the things they should be doing. One um, Alaskan dog musher, and and I I love this illustration because I remember holding some huskies up in Alaska and going on a sled ride, but one was describing the differences of, of huskies in the straps of a sled. And he said, some of them are known as dishonest dogs. Didn't know you could have a dishonest dog he said they learn how to fake it to pretend it they they pretend they're working hard by leaning against the harness without really pushing that's sort of a good illustration of someone here they're doing just enough maybe to get by but they're not really doing what they should be doing and so if we're if we're not looking for productive ways to serve the kingdom of God, if we're just coasting through, if we're idle and just after our own interests and just after what we like to do, we're probably violating this one. And I I warn you of the disastrous consequences of that kind of life because it does lead to unruliness. It is a, a, a rebellion against authority and what we should be doing. And, and it's not talking about those that, especially right now, some of you have lost jobs. That's not what it's talking about. It's, it's talking about if you could work and choose not to. Or if you know you have something that you need to do and you choose not to. That's all part of being idle. And the more we give into that, the, the harder it is to do what we should do. Idleness breeds idleness. Laziness breeds laziness. So what do we, what do we spend our time on all day? Would it fall under the category of being idle or being productive? That's what Paul is saying, be be aware of. If we wait well for God, then then we're not going to be idle. And he encourages, actually he changes here, the, the, the wording changes here, to where the body is to admonish the idle. He uses a plural here that says, this is the church's responsibility. So warn the idle. The next one that he gives, point number five in your notes, encourage the discouraged. Encouraged the discouraged. The wording that the text uses is encourage the faint-hearted or, or little-souled. And the idea is those that are timid, and, and, and really specifically here, those that, that aren't just timid and, and like, oh, I, I don't know if I can do it, but those that are worried and fearful and that worry and feel, fear has them want, wanting to quit. And so it's, it's those that are discouraged and don't know how to get out of that. We're to encourage them. Console and comfort is what that word means. Now, again, we, we have the word encourage and, and several of, of the words in the New Testament are translated encouraged. This is not the normal word for encouraged. Usually encourage Paracleos to come alongside and to help someone do it and say, come on, you can do it. Get going, yeah, with cheerlead. That's not this word. This word actually is more to comfort, to console, to worry about their heart. And where they're at. Because when someone is faint hearted, when someone is discouraged and doesn't even know if they can do anything, just do it probably isn't the right instruction. It's probably not helpful. But to build them up, to encourage them, that's what is being talked about here. The third instruction is to help the weak, help the weak. And literally, again, to hold fast to the weak, those without strength, those that are powerless, to lift them up, to to give tender care to them. And when he talks about weak here, those without power, without strength, quite possibly those who spiritually have fallen. Maybe a new Christian, and they were all new Christians. They were all weak in the faith, and, and they're being persecuted as a church. And so maybe this is someone that has shrunk from the persecution and is just weak in the faith and, and struggling against sin. And he's like, help them. And the way to help them is to tenderly care for them, to cleave to them. It, it's almost like grabbing someone in a bear hug and saying, let's do this together. You got this. Let me hold you up. And again, it's not kick the weak out. It's help the weak. As I think of our church, can we have a sign that says the weak are welcome here? Would that be a fitting description of our church? I hope so. I hope so. And, And not just to stay weak, but that they find a place of help and tender care. You know, I think of a, a biblical story. Moses is, is leading children of Israel. Joshua is fight, fighting Amalek and the army's fighting. And, and if you remember the story, when he's on the hill, as, as long as Joshua's or Moses's arms are raised, the army's winning. And when he lowers his arm, the army starts to lose and, and gets defeated by the Amalekites. Now, if you've ever tried to just stand there with your arms up for any period of time, I'll give you five minutes tops. That would be amazing. It gets tiring. Our own arms get tiring. And if you remember the story, Aaron and Hur, two of the other leaders of the time, they came on each side of them, sat on stones, and lifted his arms up and held them up. They helped the weak. And that's a great description of what this means, to come alongside, to help them stand, and to help them do what's right. Now, we we look at these three. These three form a a triad here that were to warn the idle, encourage the discouraged, and help the weak. And what's interesting is you see three different prescriptions for three different problems. So you have warned the idle, this strong admonition, a little bit in your face, encourage the discouraged, be more sensitive, worry about how they're feeling, build up and cheer them up and help the weak more come alongside and stand with them and, and um, somehow equip them to stand. Well, one of the things that I, I think of as I look at that is, as a church body, we have to understand where each others are, are at to know which medicine to give, to know which of these to do. If you take the first one, warn the idol, this in-your-face challenge to people, that is going to be worse for the discouraged and the weak. That is the wrong thing to do for them. And the same way, if we're encouraging, just cheering up those that are idle, we've just enabled them to stay idle. We haven't challenged them at all. That doesn't help them at all. And so being in a body of Christ means knowing where people are at, understanding what is the best medicine for the, for the problem. It takes work. It takes effort. And it's worth it. It's worth it. So three more things in your note to evaluate yourself. Ask the Holy Spirit to evaluate. How do I do it warning the idle? How do I do it encouraging the discouraged? Helping the weak. And the last one in that verse is be patient with all. And this covers all three of the prior instructions, but then the all is even more with everyone. Be patient with all. And I think this speaks to the tone that we do any correction, the tone that we interact with each other. It's one of patience. Sorry. It's one that understands and gives grace to people because we don't solve these problems overnight. We don't just say, okay, work on that. Yes, tomorrow we're good. No, patience means we're with people for the long haul. We don't let some of each other's problems get under our skin. We don't go home and say, well, they just need to grow up and deal with it. It's not patient. That's not the the attitude with which we deal with each other and encourage each other and build each other up. All these are about building each other up to Christ-likeness and doing it as a body. It is easy to be impatient. And and I would say it's easier right now when we're all sort of cooped up and and going through the, the same things in life. I find myself go to impatience quicker than I ever have right now. And and I'm fighting that and asking God for patience and help with that. I've talked to enough parents to know I'm not alone. Because things are different right now. And, And we're living in close quarters and we can't just get away and get some time to ourselves. But God says, be patient with all. This should be an overarching quality that covers how we do anything. Impatient people are not following godly attitudes. One of the fruits of the Spirit, patience. And so how do we live a life pleasing to God? In the body of Christ, we're patient with all. Then in the last verse, we get points eight and nine. We, we read in verse 15, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everything. And we we come here to instructions that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount that we've seen in other scriptures in Romans and 1 Peter. And the first is that avoid retaliation. Avoid retaliation. See that no one repays evil for evil. Jesus dealt with this when he said, you say it's an eye for an eye or a foot for a foot. That's retaliation, right? You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you, we're good. And Jesus says, No, that's not the way to do it. Paul here says, No, that's not the way to do it. Avoid retaliation. Do not repay evil for evil. And Jesus went on to say, But but instead, love your enemies. Do good to those that, that hurt you. Pray for them. And, and so so really, if, if I had to put this in just a common language, no paybacks. We aren't looking to pay people back. We don't hold grudges because that's part of, of, of revenge and retribution. No paybacks, unless, unless it's good paybacks. If someone does something kind for you, you can pay them back with something kind. That's good. But when it comes to something bad. Now, with kids, we just see this on display, right? They're just open. I'm going to get them because they hurt me. And, and, and we teach this to our kids. But as adults, we still do this. We're just much more refined to what it looks like. I'm just going to avoid them. No one knows. I'm going to give them the silent treatment. I'm going to give some cold stares when I can. Or maybe um, some passive aggressive comments on Facebook. Hey, no retribution. Do not repay evil for evil. It always destroys the body of Christ. And then he goes to the positive side of that same command, the flip side, do good to each other. Always seek to do good to one another. I'd underline the word always there because that covers the times when you like them and the times when they annoy you. Always seek to do good to one another, speaking of in the body of Christ, and to everyone extending outside the body of Christ, outside the church. Being kind to to someone is a good way to to put this. That's seeking to do good to one another. It's active acts of doing good for one another. In Luke chapter 6, verse 27 and 28, we see both of these concepts as Jesus again is doing some of the same teaching he did on the Sermon on the Mount. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Paul worded it, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And that word for seek is is more than just try. That word for seek is to pursue vigorously, to do. And, And so if we could quote the master philosopher Yoda, do or do not, there is no try. This is a do, it's not a do not. But make sure Make sure that we are always seeking to do good for one another. So this week, try this. With every interaction you have, and I mean every, because it says always. With every interaction you have, try to to be kind, to do good. Every uh, One of my personal things is whenever I have someone checking me out at a store or something, I want to make them smile. Usually I can't. Every now and then you get someone that, okay, I just need to pray for because they're having a terrible day, obviously. But can I do good to everyone around me? Guys, that's part of our testimony too, isn't it? Because if God has done so much for us, can't we do good to others? Can't we do good to others? Nine commands. Nine commands as we wait for Christ's return of how we please God. And some of these are easy, some of these are hard, but I'm reminded even from our worship this morning that the reason we can do these, the reason we can do good to others, the reason we can be patient with others, the reason we can live at peace with others is because Jesus Christ has changed us. And he has put a new spirit in us and we are now to be copying his attitude and his mindset as Philippians 2.5 says. Because Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins. He took the sins that we we haven't paid for, that are the only payment for his death. He paid that price on the cross. And in a beautiful exchange, he took our unrighteousness and sins and dealt with those on the cross. And he gave us his righteousness. And we put that on like a coat and then three days later, he rose again and defeated death. And that sin is taken care of. That sin is forgiven. It no longer defines who we are. What defines us is that righteousness from Christ that he has given us. And so that righteousness of Christ is where I have the strength to be patient with people that annoy me. That righteousness of Christ is where I have the patience to do good even to those that hurt me. To, to have peace with one another to follow church leadership, to build up others in a way that is appropriate. Man, we've got to do that out of the righteousness of Christ, not our own effort. And so as you look through sort of checking yourselves on these things, the master checklist is, am I living in light of God's sacrifice, of Christ's sacrifice? Does the cross make a difference in my my life? Because it has changed you. And it's the work of Christ that enables us to do these things. Don't just check them off on your own effort. Draw close to Christ, and he will let you do these things. So we're waiting for Christ's return. We wait well by working while waiting, by working on these things. Today's text, with with church leadership and with each other, next week's will be in our, our personal life with Christ, in our spiritual life, but these are great checklists to remember. Let's pray. Lord God. I pray that you would um, just bless this body. Thank you for their diligent effort to follow these texts. Lord, I, I see it over and over, every one of these nine things. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to reaffirm these today and do them even more. Lord, I, I pray that you would um, mark Village Bible Church as a testimony for you and use it as a light to this neighborhood, to our own communities, to Orange County, Lord, as a light that proclaims what it means to follow Christ. Lord, even as we deal with difficult situations in our world around us, help how we deal with those be part of our light. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that enables us to do these things. In your precious name, amen.